Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. I think your skin is technically your biggest organ. Yes, if I remember correctly. All right. Uh, are we ready to do this weird thing? Oh. Uh, welcome, Kyle. Uh, I don't know how to start this. You're listening to Recyclables. Uh, this is my podcast where I take my friends on my adventures to be less trashy or what. Actually, the official tagline is an unschooled educational podcast. And I'm never not going to be trashy, so how fucking dare you? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, that voice was my friend Rochelle Cody. I'm Patrick Thomas Perkins. He said my name right for once! Shit, I forgot my bit. <laughs> Nailed it! Rochelle Cody, yeah! No! Cody, yeah? Nasty! I, I, I've just decided to say Rochelle's name as French as possible every episode. <laughs> and it's always wrong. Hey, Rochelle Cody! <laughs> Joining us today. That's the worst. <laughs> it's a Rochelle Cody. Carl Adams. Carl <laughs> Adams. Uh, local comedian, local, just great guy. You do, you do you act too? Is that in the uh, when I, in high school? I acted. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a lot of comedians where it's like we end up in stuff that's acting, and then there are people who intentionally like multi-class. And I didn't know if you were in the multi-class designation or not. No, no, I haven't. I mean, I I did some um, I did some stuff for like little short films in Florida with my buddy here and there, but it's been a real long time since I've done any acting. I always forget that you're not, you look so much like a person who's lived in Portland all their life. Yep. That I totally forget you came from Florida. Oh but, yeah. And that's my, it's part of my uh, Pacific Northwest disguise. It's actually a bit I've been doing lately that I, I've been, I covered myself in fur and flannel. So people don't know I'm from Florida. Did you know Dolly is from there too? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I didn't, anyway. Um, well, we started about the same time. So, I moved from Montana to Portland in 2015. When did you move to Portland? I moved to Portland in 2012. So, Kyle was here a lot longer than me. Patrick's (laughs) been here a lot longer. I was born in Portland, moved to Sacramento, and came back to Portland. So, I'm both from Portland and from California. You're from Sac and P-Town. Yeah. I'm I'm embarrassing. Sac and Tac. And my initials are PP. Like, who does that to a child? I just went from Great Falls to, like, a Montana iteration of Portland to Portland. Okay. That, is, that has been my trajectory. Oh, that's right, because Missoula is pretty, pretty, pretty freewheeling hippie. It's very gentrified right now. Oh, uh, that's unfortunate. Speaking of unfortunate things, uh, we decided, I decided, since it's my show, to uh, talk less about serious things and more about things that entertain me greatly. Um, and that's why today we're going to talk about... Drug addict, a sex fiend, a person I think could generously be described as a madman, and socialist visionary, Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> what is your, uh, Kyle, before we get started, or, or Rochelle, who, whatever, you're on the show too. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know why what you is say your, my name. What is your guys' uh, feelings about Star Trek? I, so... I think Kyle's going to know more than I am. I don't know much about it. I know that um, I was I was never a huge fan of it because I think I either saw it too early or it just didn't click with me. And there was also in Florida, 
or at least where I grew up in, in the area, there was like a very specific camp of nerd. You were either a Star Trek and D&D nerd or you were like a Star Wars nerd, like more of an action okay. type nerd. So for some reason, I had it in my head that you couldn't like Star Trek and Star Wars. And then I met a bunch of people in... in Portland that obviously just loves sci-fi in general. The only the only thing that we will like live in harmony is Star Wars and Star Trek fans. Like <laughs> we're like we're gonna ignore like you know gender equality or racial equality, but you know what? Who can live in harmony? Two kinds of white nerds. Yep, yep. <laughs> but I uh, I don't know. I, I I guess I saw like uh, my experience with it as a kid at least was I would see Next Generation in passing, and I'd be like, oh, this is goofy looking. Mm-hmm. Like, this is kind of that. But I've, I've, I've watched some of it. I dated, a, the last person I dated was really into it, and I was like, I was like, show me the best of the best. Like, show me, like, your favorite episodes from each series, so I can get kind of a feel. And I liked some of it. I liked, I did like Next Generation, what she showed me. I liked, I saw some episodes with Q, who's an interesting character. Yeah, I liked yeah, yeah. that, like, the whole hive mind entity or whatever. Um, and then I actually really en- enjoyed the original series. The original series had kind of, like, a Twilight Zone vibe to it and i like that but i I should i should interrupt you because that was a bit of a trick question Mm -hmm. we're probably not going to get to star trek today (laughs) (laughs) that's true that was no i did that on purpose because uh i would like to have you back in the future if this if this goes well and you want to do it exactly uh and i didn't i didn't initially know a lot of the things i found out about gene roddenberry until the last little while uh because uh, for the podcast and for personal reasons, like I've been researching a lot of different other stuff. And so my brain bleach has been like, I'll put on like Star Trek listicles where they will be like top 10 plot changes that revolutionize Star Trek history or worst mistakes by admirals or most famous races or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of them was describing how Deanna Troy in the early Star Trek was going to have three boobs and be, like, the most sexual thing on the planet. <laughs> and they nixed it very early in the script. And and they made a big point in the listicle about how it was Gene Roddenberry's idea. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I've got to I've gotta know more. So we didn't get a three-booed sex lady? I mean, you can go to Total Recall for that. Yeah, that's, that was no, just, I that's what I was going to say to Total Recall. So I was just, just like, saying, mm-hmm. it'd be nice to know if there were two of those. <laughs> no, the more, the more multi-breasted women, I... The Greeks put a lot of eyes on things. I'm a bigger fan of putting all the boobs on things. Yeah, why stop at three though? Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I would like you can serif- have a lady that's just all boob. Yeah, just a serif. Oh. Yeah, just a, t- <laughs> just a serif. Beat an angelic. Did you guys watch what was that movie with Forty Days, Forty Nights? The guy who didn't have sex for forty days. Who was that? Oh, Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett, and he like floats. He's like in a dream, and he's just like. Like, over, like, yeah, or it's like a, a hillside of booze. But. That movie had so many other toxic messages. There that was, was so just... much awful stuff. Oh my god. Oh my that god. Is, that is one of those movies that 20-year-old me loved. And mm-hmm. I, what am I, like, turning 34, 38 this week? And I'm like, man, I, I hope my son never watches that at an age where he thinks any of that is acceptable. Yeah. Like, right. um... This is three boobs guy. Three boobs guy. Yeah. Can <laughs> I refer to him as three boobs guy a lot? Three boobs. <laughs> uh, Gene Roddenberry is born in El Paso, Texas on August 19th, 1921. I, I think that makes him a Leo, but I actually don't know. I'm not going to keep that in because I don't know astrology. I don't know why I decided that. Wait, say what day of his birth is? August 19th. Okay, that's a lot of what people want to know. Someone will probably want to know yeah. when during the day. 
<laughs> I don't want to know the specifics. I don't care about any of it, what? but I know what people care about it about. One of my friends is going to be like typical Scorpio behavior. <laughs> oh my god. Gene was born in El Paso, Texas in 1921. Like I said, his father's name was Eugene Edward Roddenberry. Ooh. The family called him Papa. M- more on that as we go along. Uh, his mother was named Carolyn Glenn Goldman Roddenberry. Uh, Gene's official n- full name is Eugene Wesley Roddenberry, so he's not he's not an exact Roddenberry double, but definitely a Eugene Jr. Um, he is the firstborn in his family. He is born in his mom's house, like his mom's family house, to the same doctor that birthed his mom. Mm-hmm. Oh, damn. Like that's how that's how small El Paso is at the time when he came out of that Roddenberry pie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You knew that was coming up. That's why. That's why we have you. <laughs> you know, like Mon- Montana has huckleberries. Texas has Roddenberries. That's. Uh... <laughs> Uh, he was. He was. It was a home birth, which was common for the early twenties. Uh, not a lot of people going to the doctor. You would usually have the birth. He wasn't beamed down. Yeah, he was not <laughs> beamed down. This. This is actually all propaganda. He is actually from the future and oh, was just beamed in. Uh, he was born with a, a cowl over his face, which means just the placenta was still kind of attached. But it is of note because, like, the midwife that was there was like, "Oh, babies that are born with that can see into the future." Ooh. So there's a little. Of note, though, Gene Roddenberry is the source for a lot of the information about Gene Roddenberry, and as you can guess by his future, he's a bit of a storyteller. Yeah. So it's, it's, he was named by his grandmother Lydia, his his maternal grandma. So she decides the name for his mom, uh, and his mom's just like, "All right, I guess I have to do that." El Paso, Texas, in the early twenties, is actually a real specific place, and the meeting of his parents is actually very important to the rest of his life. Uh, Gene very much looked up to his dad, uh, and it very much molded who he was as a person just because of the way his dad acted uh, and and just kind of inspiration he gave him. So a little bit about his dad. Uh, He's born in Georgia. He has three birth certificates that we know of, so we don't actually know when he was born. Oh, jeez. They're just taking guesses. Uh, Well, what happens is... Uh, before the turn of the century, he lies to get into the army about his age. He drops out of school. He um, gets a fake ID to, to fight for his country. Yes, but it's even it's even weirder than that when yeah. when you start looking at kind of the the history that's going on around it. Because post Civil War Georgia Reconstruction is this area where white supremacy is set in, but mm-hmm. slavery isn't. So the conditions that lead to Jim Crow. Those oh, yeah, yeah. They, they had to rebuild everything. I remember that in American history. Yeah, they, yeah. they were, like, uh, bankrupt, basically. Yeah, the and there's there's also constant terrorist attacks from the KKK mm-hmm. on communities that are, are black, or if you're, if you're kind of black communities, then they will attack white people as well. It's less common to attack white people, because if you kill one group of people in front of another group of people, they're going to be scared that they're next. It's, mm-hmm. it's cause and effect. So his dad grows up in this environment and joins the army when he's 16. So he, he had not finished, he had just finished elementary school, according to his own, like, accounting. Uh, so, but, but he knew how to like read. Fifth grade graduation. And yeah. Then, and then yeah. he goes into the army. And so what that, and, and he also says the army settled him down. Yeah. And I think. Wait, so how old was he? 16. Okay. Because fifth grade's like 10. 
Yeah, yeah, so but the he doesn't. Party he, drove was a tank. Yeah, he That's like he, he he worked on like in the family business for a while. So, but he stopped going to school after elementary school and and, and worked and, a little bit and then joined the military at sixteen. And it's like I I that straightened me out and taught me discipline. That probably oh made, my made him a perfect soldier. So wherever <laughs> he came from before that, where he's like, I want out of it because here's the other part: post Civil War, America is basically if you're if you're signing up to be a soldier kind of post-Civil War, before World War One, it's less because of the draft or because of any notions of patriotism and more because you That's get a job true. killing people in another land. Like you're going to Cuba and invading it or you're going to Panama and you're, you're not invading it, but you're killing all the people who don't want to make the canal for you, which is basically invading it. You're, you're, you're doing a lot of imperial shit in, in that era of American history. So when you sign up... In that era, all eras. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> but but the point is, at 16, when you're signing up for the army at that point, you're not signing up because you're like, I want to serve my country and God. You're like, man, I just kind of want to kill people for money. Mm-hmm. And then you get into that environment and you're like, oh, it gave me discipline and a purpose. So that's that's the man that is Gene's dad. Uh, he gets stationed in El Paso, Texas uh, for training. And the important part about that is he gets stationed before World War One. Uh, and he does seem to do really well in the army. Like, he, he does seem to, like, I, I saluted the microphone, because that works yeah, on a podcast. I'm saluting a lot right now. I do. I do. A lot of energy I did not sign up for. So, soldiers, <laughs> soldiers stationed in Texas at this time are in a weird position, because we're not at war with Mexico, but we're kind of constantly expecting to be at war yeah, with we're Mexico. we're not, not at war with Mexico. And they're them. also having a civil war, so it's one of those things where we're worried their civil war will spill, spill over, over here. Yep. Uh, his dad was also among the first, the it's final, like a, like a really shitty bar fight. <laughs> yeah, and there there is a point where Pancho Villa does uh, like kind of do a, a, a pseudo attack on America, but it's really just he wants to get the Americans engaged with the war with Mexico. But there is a point where his dad is one of the units that's chasing Pancho Villa through Texas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Part of part of the issue at that time. Uh, with El Paso that they have is, like I said, the, the basically psychopaths for hire for, for Empire are showing up in their town in large groups and <laughs> garrisoning them. So like, their job is just to hang out there. And if you're a small town, that's not necessarily great for you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's not a bad opportunity for you economically to, you know, boost some of your prices of basic commodities to people that live outside your town. So there's a lot of tension between the soldiers and the locals. Uh, and they start throwing these kind of party gatherings, hoedowns. And a uh, 17-year-old Edward, or Eugene Edward Roddenberry, his dad, then meets Gene's... Yeah, yeah. True, three boo. Yeah, then meets Gene's mom, <laughs> who is 12 at this stand. Oh, damn. He's going to Jerry Lee Lewis her. They have no hanky-panky, uh, according, to the, according to Gene's autobiography. He just uh, had a very firm handshake. Yes. <laughs> but he, he did... He did <laughs> My favorite. Can, I, can I have a firm handshake, madam? You are going to have to have so many trigger warnings on this episode. Oh my God. It's just, it's just, I remember, be, I, I'm picturing my 17-year-old son looking at a 12-year-old oh. and being like, I want to I wanna settle down with that and start a family. Like, so the war, oh. he doesn't get to because um, a little thing happened. I don't know if you've heard of it, Rochelle. World War One. What? Mm-hmm. So What? So Papa gets shipped off. Archduke Fran Ferdinand got shot. Is that that one? Yeah, yeah. Duh, yeah. Duh, duh. I seriously forgot that that was that one. I was. Like, I know because there's a band called Franz Ferdinand, <laughs> and I rocked out to take 
I, I had to, I had to in my head you said that and then I was like oh yeah that did happen because in my head I asked myself wait was that who Hitler killed and then my brain immediately was like that wasn't exactly who Hitler killed <laughs> so Papa goes to war in World War One um, he sees time in the trenches he does end up getting hit with gas and has to recuperate in a church at the end of the war um, he gets shipped out near the end of the war I guess from if if I'm understanding um, I read Star Trek creator by david alexander that was one of the major sources for kind of the gene part of the story and then the rest of it stuff i know or i pulled in from elsewhere because mm-hmm. he's a sleuth i am sort of I, I i pieced it together on accident so gene's dad <laughs> gets shipped back to uh texas after the war and is serving the rest of his time out before he gets honorably discharged and he starts dating another girl in town who is 17 to his 23 uh, oh, and oh, she is talking about this very handsome soldier that she is dating to glenn and she's like oh that's my man from before the war and so they meet each other and when she's 17 they get married Nine months later, she gives birth to our hero, Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the song She Was Just 17 comes from. And now you know the mean. rest of the, the story. story. Oh, oh my fucking god. So so his dad is his dad uh gets a job working for the railroad. <laughs> Land down that line. Uh, but also works as a detective on the railroad line. And this is during kind of our second iteration of what I like to call the labor wars. I don't think anyone else calls them that. But there's an era when, like, labor tries to organize itself and the government or, or capital responds in a very, very, like, okay, we'll shoot all the unionizers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a police uh, for the rail ra- railroads in this time. Uh, but he also works on and off as a regular person on the line and realizes this kind of isn't a tenable living. So he moves to L.A. and becomes a cop there in Ooh. 1931. I think I got that right. Uh, how, how hard did the Depression hit the L.A. area? We're going to get to that. Because it's uh, interesting. Well, no, here's the thing. Oh, is it going to make my heart hurt? Well, <laughs> before World War One, L.A. isn't much of a space like there's these rich guys who buy it and are trying to hype it up as like a place people can move because in the early teens we're still kind of doing manifest destiny like go west wagon train bullshit like the 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 cowboy age as we think of it really doesn't end until the 20s like like the idea of western expansion and pioneering and homesteading and whatnot and so there's these people who have an idea for a city that will be la and it's kind of like um uh, like a development property. Mm-hmm. So so they just have this land, they have these houses, and they pitch it. And that's what ends up eventually becoming L.A. It kind of functions primarily as a port early on. Most entertainment is produced in New York. So in the early 20s and teens, studios move out there because you, if you get in early uh, as a business... Yeah, and you can make all the rules. So there's like a lot of apocryphal, not necessarily accurate stories, but there's a lot of incidences of like somebody being found dead and the producers of the bigger companies are called ahead of the police to make sure there's nothing that incriminates the studio. Like, like, like... This is very, very, very anecdotal and happens much later in the timeline. But, like, Marilyn Monroe is a, is another example of somebody who, like, dies and we don't know the exact timeline because there's rumors that, like, the studio was called ahead of the police and stuff like that. Kyle, are you taking this shit in? Yeah, this is crazy. Just yeah. It's it kind of like how it, um, 
at Disney World, uh, if someone dies, it doesn't. They, they, they don't. They, die. Does, they don't. They don't die on Disney property. No. They take the body off and then they declare them dead. They take them off Disney property before they technically are dead. Yeah. So it's like um, it's like the rule of energy um, at Disney. Oh, you can't have a birth at Disney World either. <laughs> uh, it can neither be created nor destroyed. <laughs> okay, I would love the free birth of baby at Disney and be like, I, no, it fucking happened. I, I love the idea that Disney is like a place that exists so far outside of time and space that like you know how to be born or die there disney is literally the end of history that's, yep, that's great anti-life equation oh that's, that is that, is that is a word i use a lot in yeah. the in the series as my that's kind of what i feel like uh patriarchy capitalism and, and white supremacy it all that's oh, yeah. all the anti-life equation i know oh, yeah. i know it's like anyway anyway we can nerd out on that later oh, we, yeah. can, we can <laughs> folks it's come to my intention that we also have a sponsor Cacinate. You've heard it right. Cacinate. To laugh loudly. <laughs> Patrick wanted to make sure you knew what it sounded like. So from now on, the Joker doesn't laugh. He kef, te, kef, te, He cacinates. 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 The synonym we have here is guffaw. Uh, cacinate sounds very aggressive. I like it. I, that's what I'm gonna. That is what I'm gonna call it from now on. When somebody is at an open mic and tells a joke so awful. Nobody should laugh, but I find it funny that they were willing to go up and tell that joke. When, when they're caffeinate. like, "Yeah, I didn't laugh at you, open micer. I caffeinate." <laughs> you didn't caffeinate, Patrick. L.A. becomes a production manufacturing shipping town uh, with World War One. Uh, that ends up being kind of profitable. So when World War Two, it also goes on. In the interim. Some of that manufacturing and stuff is obviously still going to be used and processed for America or surplus sale. There's also this thing where the city is kind of creating its identity. Gene's dad becoming a police officer is very, very influential on Gene's life uh, and ends up being influential on a lot of his art and his own personal experiences and opinions. Um, Policing itself is going through a particular change in the later 20s, early 30s. Um, if you want a lot better, more concise information about it, I recommend The Dollop has a like four-part episode about the history of L.A. policing that I'm going to kind of borrow from. And there's episodes... Behind the Bastards did a mini-run of like Behind the Police or something that gives a really good history of police history. Mm-hmm. But the important part is we don't have policing the way we think of it until after the Civil War. Three guesses as to why the first two... KKK. Yeah. They were the first police force, right? Essentially, because what what you have before that is you have, like, Night's Watch, which are people who just go around and are like, hey, breaking into that building? Okay, I'll hit you over the head and take you to jail. Mm -hmm. You you have town guards, or you have a constable who's... And they also... Well, Wild West, they had, like, the wanted poster system, basically, right? Like, they'd have, like, a sheriff of the town. Yeah, and and what that is... And and the sheriff is really not a a law... Even though they're law enforcement, they really function in this... vigilante. They function in this gray space where they know everyone in town and their job is to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's being abusive, it's not to stop the abuse. It's just to make sure it doesn't bother people. Or if she's in danger, all right, well, we'll get her out and put him in the jail or whatever. But we don't really care about 
policing the situation. So it's it's kind of up to you. And it's also a very local phenomenon. That's the important part about that, that kind of sheriff system, mm-hmm. is it's people in and of a town doing actions. It's almost, tri- I, don't, I don't want to use the word tribal, but you know what I mean? Like kind of like a community-based. Small thing. town. Yeah, com- small town. Yeah, it's got, it's got. Everybody imp- knows everybody. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're the, the sheriff in that situation or the constable, like your job is less about, you know, stopping criminals and fighting crime and more, you're just the dude in town who watches jail. After the Civil War, we, we talk about it a lot on this podcast. There's a vacuum that gets created where we force down minority classes and white people kind of fill up the middle class. The way you do that, one of the ways you do that is with police. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you have terrorists like the KKK and you don't want them to get arrested. So you start to become the police because you're their friend or you're in the KKK and you don't want to get arrested. Mm-hmm. At the same time, political parties are going to be incentivized by that because you're basically, as the police, like goon squads for the government, more or less, right? Like just mm-hmm. in a very simplistic way. And so it becomes a thing where policing has before kind of this, not necessarily lower class, but not high and very local. As the Civil War happens and as we make these changes, they all get institutionalized is the other thing. So if your dad did something as a police officer and you take up the job and you're a cop, you're going to do something and you're going to say, well, this is tradition now because I just do what he did, assuming he knew what he did, not realize, I mean, realizing consciously or unconsciously, you know, he's fucking a, a terrorist playing cop. Like it's the side eye of that statement, my own. It's but. kind of like what's happening now where they're, they're the ones judging and holding their own selves accountable versus people holding the and that, that Yeah, and that starts all the way back then because mm-hmm. you set up this system, but at the same time you also kind of rise it in prestige every every generation or so. So it goes from mm-hmm. being like, okay, like, like a lot of – think of how many sheriffs are the town drunk in, in uh, like old western. It's mm-hmm. because like it's just some job any dude can do that doesn't want to be the rancher. You know what I mean? Like it's just whoever can be the sheriff. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But as we – as we legitimize it and we give it more kind of tradition and cultural authority behind it, you rise in class stature as well. So it goes from being bottom of the barrel job to something important. By the time his dad is doing it, by the time Roddenberry's dad is doing it, it's in this transitional period where his dad doesn't even need a high school diploma to become a cop. Spoiler alert to future part of the story, Gene has a college degree when he becomes a police officer. Mm-hmm. And so it's in that period that this institutionalization of this thing that started, you know, not even two generations ago, you create kind of a middle class in that way by saying, okay, only white people can be the sheriffs. They're only going to protect white interests. And so white supremacy just kind of becomes the norm of the system. The old version of that means that like on one end, kind of pre, like from the 19 teens to the 1930s ish, you have kind of, you still have a lot of thuggishness in the police department because you're still recruiting people kind of interested in the kind of the legal end of the gray end of criminality. You might run extortion scams like, mm-hmm. hey, we'll keep the criminals out as long as you pay us a little extra. It sounds like he kind of replicated what he did in the military too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's part of the logic. That's a lot of it. Is well, that's, there's always still a streamline of military into the police. Yeah, as well. and there's like, a pipeline right and then, too. Uh, I think. And then in high school, you, it goes back. It goes. So that's like the Pokemon evolution. It, it's wrestler, marine, cop. <laughs> that's how it goes. It goes high school wrestler, marine, cop, and it's just it's a, this this path of aggression that just <laughs> you, you exposed it to a rage stone. Yeah, <laughs> I'm exposed to a rage stone. That's great. <laughs> I would have been the worst wrestler. <laughs> I, it was one of those sports I never even considered because I was like, they're just going to break me. Like, oh, there's yeah. no there's no way I can wrestle and, and 
<laughs> the uh, I, my dad was a coach, a wrestling coach, and he went to state when he was in high school. So he wanted me to try it out. I did one season, and like, uh, no it's thanks. rough. You you run three miles and then practice starts. It's and then <laughs> that's you gotta like disgusting. yeah. And I saw I saw the shit like some of my friends were on it, and I I would see the shit that they would do. Like you gotta like monitor your water <laughs> and like yeah. what you eat and like all of this. It's it's great that like we don't acknowledge that we give men eating disorders. Great system, five stars, no notes. However, I have some notes about the police. <laughs> so his dad is in that era of the normalization. Another important factor is he's an LA cop, but he doesn't live in LA. He's always living in the suburbs outside of the general city. So he's a beat cop in town, but he lives out in the suburbs. And because he's a civil servant when the Great Depression hits, the family does pretty well. They get to live real comfortably. And yeah. it also, his his dad is kind of that old strain of conservatism, though, where he's he's always adopting strays off the street that he finds. Every Sunday, there's a big meal for the whole neighborhood that everybody can attend. He feels an obligation of... One nice thing about like previous iterations of conservatism is you feel a responsibility to your community mm-hmm. because their idea of Christianity, while still pretty flawed, is, is such that you're like, well, I have these rewards and I need to share them. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. it gets kind of converted to like I have these rewards, so I deserve them. But mm-hmm. that's so unfortunate because like that sounds like what Ron Swanson is in Parks and Rec. Because <laughs> I get, I get he's the perfect libertarian. Because I'm like, I've never met a libertarian. Your dad's such a libertarian. It blows my mind. So I'm like, no, that theory does not help you at all, or your son. He doesn't. Under, no, he doesn't understand what he means when he says libertarian. Because he doesn't believe in that i think no, he's I just think not he does. i think he's just more conservative than some people in portland or the most and that's like you know, no that's i get that because i but he's I, not conservative either it's weird i no i get that because i dabbled i dabbled with that like i've always considered myself independent but i never uh but i was like well i guess if i had to be republican i would be the libertarian version yeah right the same way if i had to be democrat i guess i'd be whatever version i would be socialist democrat i guess whatever that one's also weird because libertarians, like, it, it means something outside of the United States different than how we use it in our political language. And, like, oh! yeah. Ayn Rand. Probably. Rand. Pro- yep. Snapper, snapper spine. Just. <laughs> okay, so his dad is part of that early iteration of, of cops living outside. Did she get cremated? Ayn Rand? Yeah. I don't know. I, I just wonder if I could find her spine. Oh, and just pee on oh, Dig it your... up and snap it in yeah. the... No, if you're going to find spines, give them to me, goddammit. That was not useful to you. Can I at least do that because it's not useful to True, you? and I would I would definitely, I would turn down Henry's spine. Because I would be I'm, the most evil spine. No, she wasn't even evil. She was just bad at being not good know. either. Like, I, all right. I don't know. We're, we're I'm go- sorry, I'm sorry. Be- <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 kind of a clear example of the kind of gene, the guy that Gene's dad was, I think, is that he was still a staunch Democrat, but thought, this is A, back when Democrats are what we would consider Republicans, mm-hmm. and Republicans are what we would consider Democrats. So, so, that's, so he's definitely a good old boy from the South. He uses all the racial language like, like, like he uses a lot of, a lot of slurs that I don't, like letters I don't even want to use. Like, uh, all of them. He's also, though, considers himself a fair cop because he's, or a good guy because he's going around and if he sees a, an orphan kid on the street in the Great Depression, he's like bringing him home and helping him find a family or he's mm-hmm. feeding his whole neighborhood. Uh, at the same time, he's a cop who during Prohibition refuses to go to the speakeasies, will arrest people, but brews beer 
in the back under the under the porch. It's that weird it's it's this thing that really gets impressed into Gene that if you have your own strong moral core, it kind of doesn't matter what you present. Mm-hmm. And the story is very emphasized. Gene tells a story in the book and I've seen it a couple of other places. He's a very talkative child. Uh, and he starts writing from a very early age. Like, I think poetry of his is put into, like, the school newsletter at five, and it's a big deal. But but when he's in school at, like, five or six, or maybe it's the fifth grade, one of those two, he's he's going up a flight of stairs. And back in those days, like, you, you had to listen to the teacher. So the teacher would be like, you know, single file, up the stairs, one step at a time. And the teacher is convinced that Gene skipped a step, and he didn't, right? And he's like, if I just tell her, okay, I skipped the step, Worst case scenario, she wraps me on the fingers and we continue about our day. But if I stand here and fight, all that happens is I know I was right and she thinks I'm obstinate. I'm just going to say I did it and get on with my day. And that's what he does. And it kind of defines a lot about Gene. He's he's non-confrontational as he grows up. Mm-hmm. He has a, a complicated relationship with women, especially that he gives authority in his life. And he's willing to... Uh, telling the story also is very telling of him because he's willing to admit to... A small flaw to ignore a bigger flaw, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like he's like, well, I didn't lie, but I when I did lie, it was for it was it was to save time and to smooth things over. Oh, I was gonna dig, I was gonna put a dig on Star Trek, being like, oh, so that's why there aren't any fights in Star Trek, where <laughs> there's there's not a, a lot. Little, I mean, comparatively, yeah, to other and sci-fi. that's. Because they're always like, hey, can we talk about this first? (laughs) And well, that was that was his goal uh, kind of when he did come up with Star Trek was he was like, I the way to make it believable isn't the sci fi element. Mm -hmm. The way to make it believable is the humans doing stuff and then the sci fi happens around them and they're they're so normalized to it that it's it's not even a wonder. So it's it's one of those weird. But but that also shows up in, in who he is as a kid because there's multiple instances of him kind of learning, at least at least from his, his telling, learning a very solid moral compass of what's right and wrong mm-hmm. and, and kind of following his own way, but at the same time kind of being willing to capitulate to surroundings, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is I think his dad, like there's a story about how his dad a block from the house would honk the horn for the kids to open the garage and then it's just kind of like dot 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 about what they what he would do if they didn't open the door, mm-hmm. and like I, I can only guess at what the dot 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 is when your dad is like a twenty seven year old war vet who's also <laughs> an L A beat cop. Oh. Like, oh my god! So I can oh understand. I can understand oh why god. he would avoid confrontation. I can also understand where he gets a strong sense of moral right and wrong because mm-hmm. his dad presents at least kind of. I mean, his moral compass is, in our opinion very very skewed his magnetic north is like east but like he's still doing what he thinks is right and that very much yeah. is influenced and that is kind of like the vibe of the star trek stories is they're going out into the universe and trying to right wrongs and, and just kind of like figure out what's going on and, and so, so it's almost like a sociological i did want to say my only exposure to star trek really is just like the newest movies oh yeah like i didn't watch any of the show i think I think I just never watched it with someone, and I didn't get to pick TV a lot when I was a kid, so... I, I can remember multiple instances of child abuse that were soothed by Star Trek oh, The Next Generation. Nice. So, like, it's very... It, so, I have I have strong emotional connection with Star Trek as well. So, he yeah. survives the Depression because the family is police. They're civil servants, so they have to... The, the other thing is the, the police union kind of negotiates it to where they can never go on strike... Right, but their conditions are are 
such that you they wouldn't have a reason to you know what i mean so mm-hmm. like they get good enough pay so even though they take a pay cut during the depression they're still making more than people without a job and it's one of those things where like if you just have a job you're lucky even if it's like one you don't like or it doesn't make a ton they still share some of this wealth there's weekly dinners uh and the police are a very uh a regular influence on gene's life as well comps come in and out to these dinners to these big events and his dad is one of those guys who's like just has to be right also so like there's an instance of somebody saying he can't make a trip in 15 minutes like a two-mile trip and so he does it and he brings uh you uh, gene has a younger brother bob and a younger sister doris he grabs bob and does this thing and bob's like i had to run to keep up with my dad but he walked it because he's like a cop who you know walks a lot and has this huge stride he walked it in 15 minutes and there's other instances of like he hated his brother-in-law so he just ate a whole pie before he got there so the brother-in-law couldn't Roddenberry pie yeah Yeah. (laughs) and i also think it's important to remember that he is the the parents are super young throughout all this so i imagine there's a fair amount of just that that blatant sexuality that happens when you're 20 seven 30 year old guy and your wife is five years younger than you mm-hmm. like like I, I think all of this goes on uh like, like, like i can imagine how all of this influences gene i just think it's fucked up they named one of their kids robert roddenberry yeah <laughs> robbie roddenberry it's she... like that character in chowder that's why they called him bob but i can't like yeah, Rodden- Bob, Roddenberry is such a like that's just a mean name like that's a a a important figure in his early life is this guy named William H Parker. He eventually goes on to be the chief of police in L.A. But uh, he knows he he's one of these guys who is in charge of the real reformation of the police from being the goon squad to kind of this. A civilized force that has to follow procedures, take notes, mm-hmm. uh, collect evidence, and all that stuff. There's a science being applied and added to kind of justify the role, especially because now it's been around by the 30s and 40s for like 60 years. So people feel like it's normal, even though it's a thing we started doing after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Parker is part of the movement to get that changed oh also the family is kind of forced to be entrepreneurial at a very young age their dad's idea of fun is telling them to go get a job or or hiring them to chores to other people (laughs) at a very young age he learns to be entrepreneurial but he doesn't learn how to have fun he just learns how to have a big family like how how to serve your family and the people around you he doesn't really get a chance to learn himself yeah or be a kid unless he's reading and there's he he loved to read from an early age who's an earthy i've heard different ages but at least 12 he identified as an atheist and like yeah and like his mom was one of those people that took him what a show off well it's it was it was also weird because like his mom took him to church his dad was one of those like you know eastern sunday guys and then or 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 if it happened like he he took note of it right and at the same time here's gene being like no i'm a humanist i believe in these things outside of what our church is teaching it wasn't until he was 17 that he made the decision that like a lot of things happened to him at 17 i'm guessing maybe he just got laid for the first time because there's all these instances where he's like i'm gonna make something of myself and i was sitting there thinking about and something happened to him at 17 i don't know exactly what but he uh he kind of makes this decision to make something of himself and like his grades go from being really good to great 
And he, he benefits from this other thing. I almost forgot about it. He's put in school at uh, an interesting time as well. He's put into one of the early talented and gifted programs. Mm-hmm. But they didn't call it like honors or anything. What, a, a international baccalaureate? Type yeah, yeah. It wasn't even... It, it was just the, the teachers in their school district were like, well, we kind of want to experiment. We're on the West Coast, so we can. Mm-hmm. We're going to put all the kids with the highest scores into one group and then kind of let them do their own thing. And they just kept excelling. But it's also like these are middle class white kids in that vacuum that I told you about. So like if you're a little bit extraordinary, you're real extraordinary because you don't have nearly as wide of a a selection of people to go against. And you're also going to get a little bit of extra special focus. They they called it the informal little group. Uh, Oh, oh, at 17 is also when he kind of has his realization that he like realizes in church that he's more interested in the deacon's daughter than the message. And so when he finally listens to it, he's like, oh, kind of like I can do this sort of thing. He sounds like I felt when I went to my first open mic, and I was very cocky, but I did an alright job. About that point, like, between the church thing and the school thing is when he kind of takes his own craft of writing seriously, but then he still keeps doing things for his family. He goes to college and, um, he goes to college, takes the exam, and gets in the 90 percentile, and then he gets in the 99.9 percentile for reading comprehension. Uh, but he studies to be a cop, like father, like son. He so also, he goes to college to, like, learn cop stuff? Yeah, because it's it's new, right? And it's it's there. Forensic science, that sort of stuff. Here's the other thing. So we know we're going to go into World War Two at mm-hmm. some point. And we know part of how we won or, or really offered support in World War One was our air support. So in the interim, they want to get as many people familiar with flying, as many white guys familiar with flying as they can. So when you go to college, they offer you free flying courses. Gene takes one of these courses. He falls learns, in love with it. He, yeah, yeah. He takes a spaceship. Basically. I think <laughs> he, he gets a chub the first time he gets to do his own flight. Maybe, because he does start. Well, no, that's interesting, because he starts rough. And he improves as he goes along, especially after his first flight. So maybe maybe he was embarrassed about his boner in front of you the other dude. You scoff at me suggesting a chub. You scoff. I mean, I mean maybe, Kyle, Kyle <laughs> imagine the pressure. You're flying your first airplane. You've got a giant erection. There's a guy next to you screaming instructions. You can't focus on everything There's at once. There's a lot of vibration on those old, tra- those old planes, yeah, too. So, so. That's all I point to. Maybe, maybe he's just, like, jerking and flying or something. Oh, my gosh. Oh, right. my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but he, he gets licensed to fly at the age of 19. In fact, he did an extra year of college, and there's some opinion that he probably did it. Like, there's no confirmation on it, but he probably did it to get more time to fly, because he just really, really likes it. He fan-wildered himself yeah. into some, some plane action. He graduates with a degree, like a degree in criminal science or whatever, mm-hmm. and he ends up being the first person uh, in his family to graduate high school and college. Nice. He joins the army just a little bit before world war ii kind of thinking look i want to beat the draft and if i volunteer then i kind of get my choice of jobs and i've got all this flying experience so he uh oh he intends to do more college um but officially pearl harbor happens and he kind of jumps into training and then uh he he gets trained in texas he excels it's a series of competitive competitions like ranked kind of series where you have to beat one class and you have to beat another class and you have to beat another class and every every step that you kind of drop down you get become less and less elite it's not top gun yet but it's the thing where he keeps getting to what we would eventually kind of think of as top gun it's the the air force well it's all confusing because the air force is managed by the army in the early days so it's yeah so it's when you join the army you do it to fly the planes (laughs) 
quick question. Yeah. Did he end up getting into the Air Force? Uh, it doesn't happen until after he uh, after the World War, so he, he oh, does not okay. not officially. But he did get into the Air Force, uh, and into their version of it. Yeah, he gets into the army and then flies. He becomes in the Air Corps, or whatever oh, okay. the thing is. So yeah. he was in yeah. the World War, and he excels. Yeah, no, he excels at the flight school. Like he, yeah, he gets married and gets deployed to Florida. Or not Florida, Hawaii. Sorry. Different, both beaches, different vibes of beach. Yeah, yeah. One's got conch shells, the other one has heroin needles. <laughs> um, but while in Hawaii, he gains the reputation as being nerdy, like knowing, reading poetry and stuff. He One of his early teachers really instills in him the importance of writing, and he becomes a fan of poetry, of classical literature. His, his favorite character is Horatio Hornblower. Who's like a captain in one of those old timey books? Oh my god, what a nerd! But he's also into sci fi. Like he reads all the pulp magazines. He reads all the the Isaac Isimovs and all that. I'm I'm sure he was he was or he was before Dune, so he probably read Dune, but he didn't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but he's a, he's also a big player while he's on the island. Like he is sleeping all over the place. How did his wife? Well, she's in this. Texas. So Why didn't she get deployed with him? Because you just didn't do that at that time. Because it's oh it's also it's it, if I if I remember right, he's like it's one of these things where you'll get deployed and they'll realize they don't need you at a spot, so they send you somewhere else. So while he's in Hawaii waiting oh, for the this plane, this is like a TDY kind of yeah. thing. And maybe? so and so he's just a huge player. Everybody knows about <laughs> it. But it's also I was gonna say why would you like like let's get married and then I'm gonna leave for a few years. Yeah, <laughs> let's see how that plays out. Like how desperate are you? So, yeah. Um, he ends up flying in... Well, they le- might have gotten married in hopes of staying together, because that's what one of my siblings Yeah, and did. I think it's also, like, it gives her benefits while he's gone. Exactly. She can, like, she can start a home for Military him. benefits are uh, fucking primo. Like, it's a, it's I think one of the important things to note is that a lot of times people join the military because of the financial benefits. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it and, sounds like Roddenberry's dad probably did also participate for the financial benefits. Yeah, yeah, his dad totally his dad was totally like like incentivized is the impression I got to make money it happened to a lot of guys I knew in high school in that weird era where like we're not really at war but we're at war right mm-hmm. where it's like they one of my best friends joined the navy because he's like what else am I gonna do and this way when I'm done if they break me at least I get money right I, it's when I applied for the army they were like you're broken and crazy that's how we finish people that's not how we start <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 true all the way back then, and I applied for much the same reasons. I was like, well, I'm smart and like cool. I I guess I'm a patriot. Do you have money? Like, yeah. Um, he ends up flying in at least eighty nine missions. Damn. And he ends up uh, getting into fighter planes specifically. Basically, the yeah 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 like dogfight kind of planes from from my understanding of it most of what they do is reconnaissance stuff so they have to they they get deployed further into the pacific and they fly these kind of pie-shaped patterns to keep an eye out for japanese patrols and so like sometimes you engage in fights sometimes you're just like hey keep the boats out of this area or Mm -hmm. send all the fucking boats to this area whichever he gets in his first crash in uh september 2nd of 1943 um, the engines are really, uh, these planes are being overflown. They're not being uh, very well maintained. Mm-hmm. And the instruments aren't always trustworthy. Um, he has a faulty takeoff. And at the end of it, basically, there's a point where in, in modern aviation, there's like instruments that tell you if you can go off or not. And then the, the engine powers down and X, Y, and Z. You don't have that in 1943. Right, you have to kind of go by feel. Planes are mm-hmm. planes are like twenty fucking years old at this point. Like they're 
That shit I've always found so crazy about like 30, people just yeah. like like this whole brand new invention. Let's let's get on in, and it's like, dude, that's let's strap ourselves yeah, to explosive like, flying like metal how, death boxes from from the Wright brothers to like commercial flights. That was only like twenty years or something, yeah, right? Yeah. That's insane to me. I feel that way about space travel, though, too, and yeah. I honestly still feel that way about flying. Like, I I am uncomfortable with it. I don't think our bodies are supposed to do it, but I will fly if I absolutely have to. I have not done it since I was eight because I'm poor. <laughs> Patrick, can I just buy you a one-way ticket to Seattle, and then I'll get you a train ticket back? And I can get all the things I missed. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, because I'll have a crash because uh, because I'm laughing at Gene Roddenberry's crash later. Um, so two people end up dying. Basically, he tries to abort it, and he can't. And I think there's an issue with the brakes. It's mechanical failure. It's not his fault. Almost immediately afterwards, he becomes a crash investigator stateside. So he'd, like, flown X number of missions. He flew a few more missions after that crash. People started... People didn't blame him, but they blamed him. It's one of those things where it's like, well, we need to blame somebody, so why not Gene? Yeah, so he's like, I would rather be on the, the other side of the crash than, yeah. than but the he, but he does, But he does blame himself a lot, because yeah. it's like, these these are family. Has, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has the moral compass that we were talking about. Yeah, so he does, he does feel really, really guilty about that, and I think that's part of why he gets into the crash investigation. And over the course of that, he gets into at least one other crash. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's not, I don't, it's also, it might be apocryphal, because it's one of those things where he tells people he got in a crash, and there's record of him being on a flight at the same time as crashes, but there's no... Did like, his in-flight boner hit a lever? Yeah. Something he, he, um, <laughs> he's still getting boners. He's just, <laughs> uh, we're going down! But, but, or no, no, no. The important part about the crash, though, is he, he, he saves two or three... flashback boner. Yeah. Flashback well, he does save two or three people, according to him, in that in that incident. And, and it was a friend that he told it to, and the friend believed him, mm-hmm. because he was like... I, I don't think I'm made up for the two people I lost, but at least maybe like it's somehow balances what I did. So Wait, so two people passed away? Yeah, two people passed in the first crash, and then in the second crash, uh, when he's like an investigator, uh, he's able to save at least two people. But the thing is, there, there's I mean, a lot... I it's just survivor's guilt, for sure. Yeah, but and also planes are, like, really dangerous in that era because, like, we're, like we're joking about, they're, like, a new technology and you're just putting fuel and electricity. They made the part... Like, one of the parts is made out of magnesium. It'll, it'll be important in a minute. Uh, and, and so magnesium can burn a lot and it can burn through a lot of things yeah so like they would put that in the engines and so if the engine catches fire with a magnesium part and the engine catches fire your whole plane goes up Mm -hmm. but they're like well we need it to do the thing to do the stuff because we don't know better and then there's all these mechanical issues that you don't know about if you don't have experience and gene is one of the most experienced pilots in in probably the world at that point afterwards he leaves the army uh and he's he writes the whole time he's in the army have either of you made a sparkler bomb? I did as a kid. Was it fun? I have never. We dropped it down a sewer, and I was very little, but I remember enjoying the fuck out of it. <laughs> oh my god, I want to do it so bad. I am I'm also that kid that's like, I like explosions. I hope nobody gets I hurt. I love explosions. I feel so bad about liking fireworks, so I, I don't light them off anymore, but I... Like seeing them. Sorry, I only I, I only light that. them off next to vets. That's the only thing. No! <laughs> Veterinarians and veterans of wars, both. Like I, no, I, that's I, the worst, because <laughs> they probably have all the shaky dogs! You fucking... <laughs> <laughs> the shaky dogs. Oh my god, all the shaky dogs! I remember, uh, man, I remember at Red Robin, we had a vet come in one time, and he's like, I don't want to be set anywhere near any balloons. 
Because just in case they pop, because oh. he would lose oh. his shit. I used to be really afraid of balloons. Probably not as bad as that, bet, but I used to be very afraid. I'm still afraid of uh, popping dough. Like, oh yeah, I'm not afraid. Oh, I hate doing that. I also hate breaking glass. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Gene Roddenberry grew to hate airplane crashes by yeah. by his third one. Uh, oh after, my God. after 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 the army, this one four people died. So <laughs> a this lot more. This one Gene Roddenberry died, but then came back to life a week later. <laughs> well, this one this one is is quite a is quite a story. Are you a small nation trying to go right wing? Do you want to illegally sell cocaine on the streets of America? A fan of arming dissidents with small arms? Then have I got the cryptocurrency for you. Crypto Infographic America. That's right. The CIA is here to make sure all of your coup needs are met. So after the war, he's writing the whole time he's in the army, so he gains kind of a reputation for that. But he's not very accomplished, right? He's just writing stories for himself, it seems like. But he does take up a number of writing courses after the war. But he also gets a job as a Pan Am pilot. He knocks up his wife at some point, and they move to Jersey. Wait, so they're still together? Yes, they. And they have them. Are they amicable at this point? They are amicable, according to him. According to him, and they have they have two kids, two daughters. Eventually, I don't know. I think only one of them is around for this part. But he he lives in New Jersey, and it's a very stressful schedule because early aviation, way more than now, like you have a huge layover in places. It takes a lot longer to repair things. Uh, Sometimes airstrips have the landing facilities, but they don't have parts for mechanics. So there's all kinds of things. He has a schedule that's consistently six weeks on, six weeks off very often. So a lot of cheating, just a lot of, and plus you're a pilot and you're, I, don't, I get the impression he's a regular smoker and drinker and those are just great ways to convert. And he's, he's one of those guys who's always the life of the party and has always got a story. I wonder what he's like when he's not the life of the party. I, Cause he cannot be that all the time. And no I, one can. And, and not with, and, and, and I don't think you leave a war unscarred, even if you act like that after war. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, so yeah, there's some of that there's... going on. Uh, on a Pan Am flight uh, in March of 1945, he is a, a kind of a unofficial co-pilot. He's like third in command. He's not actually in charge of anything. Oftentimes what they'll do is they'll fly a pilot from one location to the next in plane. And so they have some responsibility, but not really. So like if the pilot and co-pilot are like, I don't take a nap. Can you do this? So that's his job. He's on the flight, and at the at the start of the flight, they notice some trouble, but they decide to push on. He says, oh, cool, no. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to go take a nap. While he takes a nap, one of the engines catch fire. <sighs> this isn't uncommon, because you can still fly with the other engine, but that magnesium part that I mentioned catches fire mm-hmm. and won't go out. And there's a number of things you can do in the situation before the magnesium thing. You can fly higher, maybe deprive it of oxygen, yeah. fly lower, cool it down, maybe get more oxygen in there and, and push off whatever's if up. So it fly through a cloud, does it get juicy? Yes, it immediately rains starbursts. Well, That's no, how you I get... I mean, like, is it, is it moist enough in a cloud that I don't it could, know. like, cool it down? I don't know, but I would maybe. But they're flying That's over... Idea, but But they're flying <laughs> over uh, the Saudi Arabian desert. 
Um, oh shit! Yes, so pretty might not arid be a lot region. Of so, God damn it! So what they they try to they get to one facility and realize that they're not going to be able to help them, and so they try to fly to the next. And in the interim, they're like, "Oh no, we're we're landing now!" And so they circle over this town. They find that they can't uh, land anywhere near it and go into the desert. Like there's there's only one spot. Gene is asleep through like almost all of this. He wakes wow. up and is like, "Can I help?" And they're like. Yeah, we need somebody to keep them calm because they can stampede back there. They can go wild. We've just dropped an engine. There's a possibility of a secure crash landing of, of a thing that's survivable, but it requires the the passengers People to, to chill the fuck out. Yeah, so we can't we can't worry that they're gonna fucking stampede up here and kill us when we're trying to. Yeah. So Gene goes back there and and he's like, "Hey guys, everything's fine. Just you gotta buckle up. We're gonna be fine. No problem. They lose an engine and a wing." All the time. No problem. Oh. And it fucking works. Like, he, he, he's just... The other thing is, like, Gene's, like, six foot something. Like, he's a big dude. Yeah, he's a tall person. Right? And he's, and he's very boisterous. Tall people privilege. And he's got, he's got this combination of his, his southern dad, who's also a Texan, brings him to L.A., which is this big... So, so he's got a commanding presence, and he just lies his way through it. But it's, it's more a reflection of that thing that Gene does where he's like... I'm going to avoid confrontation by just telling you all what you want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and so, well, he, he secures himself. A woman goes, starts acting hysterical. So he goes up, and has a poor choice of words, starts, starts reacting naturally as you do when faced with imminent death. I mean, I think that there is a time where the word hysterical could have felt like that way, and I think that's a perfect description of that, male or female. Yeah. They, but I understand that no one's uterus wanders anywhere. He goes, he goes to calm her. The airplane crashes. He ends up breaking two ribs in, in the crash. The plane catches fire. Thanks to some, some thinking of him and... Did I put the other person? I did not. Okay, so thanks to his work and a flight attendant and another one of the crew... Bella Cody, my mother. Yes, yes, your mom, Bella Cody, was My there. mom, so, who was never a flight attendant. At least not in 1943. Was not born yet, but was going to be born the next year. Oh, nice. So. <laughs> 44, wow. Rochelle's parents are old. I, I knew that, but I didn't realize hey. that old. Wow. My mom's technically <laughs> not a baby boomer. Okay, so he... But she was a flight attendant who saved those lives. Yeah, so the, the, the plane crashes. Um, he manages to pull at least... Through his efforts and the other people's efforts. Because uh, one of the important things is they're like, hey... The, the flight attendants want to go through the crash landing procedure, and he's like, no, just buckle up. Just just buckle up. So and he, they lose some flight attendants? Well, no, 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 no. Because okay. of that, they, they manage to save more people because everybody's buckled up when they crash. Oh, okay. He breaks two ribs because he bounces around inside the cabin when it crashes. No. But he gets up and, and just, it's one of those things where it's like between the army training and the PTSD from childhood, he's managed to keep his calm in this moment of crisis. He pulls people out. In fact, he goes in at least twice, and people have to pull him out the second time because the airplane is so on fire. After that, he and the flight crew managed to, like, they kind of salvage clothes, jackets, because the desert and it's the middle of the night, and once the plane goes out of, stops being on fire, it's going to get real fucking cold. So they grab stuff from parts of the plane that weren't destroyed. They uh, get clothing for people, luggage, and they even get the, uh, the life raft. Mm -hmm. So when the sun comes up, they have a source of shade. Gene is too much shy of his 25th or 26th birthday, when all of this goes down, by the way. Next morning, they wake up, they see people at the top of the hill waving swords. Tribesmen from one of the nomadic tribes uh, came to check out, you know, the giant crashing plane in the middle of the desert. 
uh, one of the things with early flight plans is you clear passage with these these people. Uh, and this was one of the few tribes that didn't agree to whatever negotiations. But they're like, all right, we won't kill you if we can loot the dead. Mm-hmm. And so through like sign language or something, they manage to communicate that much. They do get some food and water, but it doesn't seem like much. Gene realizes there's there's telephone lines nearby. So mm-hmm. if one group goes one way and the other group goes another way, eventually you're going to find a town with things. Gene mm-hmm. gets to a town, manages to get in contact with Pan Am, manages to be like, hey, we, we crashed, guys, <laughs> out in the middle of the desert. Uh, he is fortunate to have left because uh, shortly after he left, another group of nomads came and just robbed everybody, oh, the survivors. Oh, they were left with just the clothes on their back, according to a thing. Oh my god, that's so mean. Oh, and I, I had a fact wrong earlier. His first daughter is born in 1948. That's when the year my dad was born. Okay. He gets stuck in Syria for a while. It's a new country. They don't have a uh, FCC or whatever the Flight Control Commission is. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have a, uh, they're new to investigating crashes. Mm. And so they keep asking him for information. And he's like, I was taking a nap. Like, I thought we had it solved. I thought it was. And so eventually he just kind of leaves. So like, there's no, there's no official proof that the investigation ended, but he was also like the only representative there. So he comes back, he moves home and he decides, all right, fuck it. I'm going to, I've almost died enough times now. I'm going to follow through with my dream of being a writer. That's when he finds out he has the kid. So they move to L.A. And he tries to get a job as a writer. It's just a regular kind of TV. Does his dad still live in L.A.? Yep. Uh, in the family home that they have. After a lot of unsuccessful attempts at getting a writing job. And one of the issues is that um, the Red Scare is going on in Hollywood. So oh, there, there's yeah. a lot of jobs. Oh, the McCarthyism. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of jobs being lost in Hollywood in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people no longer interested in investing there. The system is changing in a bunch of ways. So what what he thinks of as as the system that he's trying to get into just doesn't exist in a lot of ways when he gets there. So he ends up settling back on what he knows, and he becomes a cop on February first of 1949. Nice. Oh, he he is most cops. It's he ended up having to shoot a dog. 49 days into his uh, uh, service as a police officer because wow. it was tra- causing a nuisance in traffic and he couldn't find the owner. And it's it's I, it, it was mentioned in his thing, and so I wanted to... He couldn't find the owner, so he's like, whoops, yeah. damn. <laughs> well, because that's what, that's what being that's a cop is in 1949. Yeah, so um, that William H. Parker guy from earlier is, is uh, chief Oh, he's of- the guy who did the uh, Ghostbusters theme. <laughs> But before that, he was chief of police of L.A. He is notoriously one of the most right-wing racist police. He's he's the guy that's in charge when the rock... He's Watts the guy... Riots. Thank you. He's the guy that's in charge when the rock riots happen. Just busting makes him feel good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I want to say my mom stayed there at a convent in that area while those were going on. That's great. Like, went to visiting a nun family member. Well, here's here's a really a really fun thing. Gene gets his way from being a beat cop to uh, speechwriting. Because he's known uh, Mr. Parker all his life, he gets a gig speechwriting and in public relations for Parker. So a lot of the speeches that Parker is writing at this time are things Gene is writing. They're they're this weird, they have very dialectic relationship where Gene is still kind of, I wouldn't call him a, a, he's definitely liberal, probably not left. Uh, but Parker is obviously like an old school right wing racist. And so they have this weird synthesis of conversation because to Gene, a policeman is 
is in kind of the same vein of being a soldier. It's a duty to the country. It's not mm-hmm. about enforcing laws or protecting property. It's about serving your community and stepping up to it. Because that's what his dad told him it was. That was his experience in the army. Mm-hmm. And also his dad is one of the cops that aren't in on the the kind of grifty side of cop work. He's just a regular beat cop who's like serving as a traffic stop most of the time. He's one of those like career cops who stays out of controversy. So he's one of those good cops that does nothing and is kind of bad by default, you know. Yeah. Whereas Parker is one of these kind of actively bad cops from what I can tell. And Gene is this weird like the closest you'll get to a hippie in the department. And he's writing one of the worst longest running LAPD chief's speeches at the same time. But he also really gets into what policing should be, explaining it. He does this thing... He writes this uh, thing for the policeman's regular called The Seven Obligations. I actually wanted to read it. I marked it. He writes in the newspaper um, about what a policeman is. The Seven Obligations of Policing. Um, A duty to serve mankind generally rather than self-individuals or groups. A duty to prepare as fully as practicable for service before entering active practice. A duty to continually work to improve skills by all means gained available and to freely communicate professional information gained. So, you know, being willing to serve the community, being capable of it when you show up there. So being sober, being thoughtful, educating yourself and providing that education to other people. Oh, and also being honest about what kind of education you're receiving. Yeah. Like those people who take that like killing class from that one cop guy. And then don't admit it. Yeah. Um, a duty to employ full skills at all time, regardless of consideration of personal gains, comfort, and at all times assist professionals upon demand. So in other words, like, be a professional at your job and don't make it about what can I get from being a cop. Make it about what being a cop does for the community. Yeah, it really sounds like an emphasis on civil servant. Uh, a duty to regulate practice by franchising of practitioners. This one gets really long, but to accept and upgrade fellow professionals solely upon consideration of merit. So don't don't bump up people in pay or promotion because they're your friend. Do it because they've diligently served or they do the job well. Mm-hmm. Or they have gas money for the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> in addition to that last one, he also says constantly be alert to unethical practices. So, yes, just like the gas So, I, I, these are all great ideas, but it's a shame that cops just completely never yeah, look yeah. at this. That was, that, that, was, that, that was what I wanted to point out, because there yeah. was this weird point where, like, there are... This is what happens when you're a good cop in the system, and that's what Gene slowly gets to see. Because he's, he's skeptical of authority. He's super subversive of problems. He's also the only guy... Ever, anyone else goes into Parker's office and argues with them, or even is like, sir, I don't know about that. They're fired. Gene is going in there and having, like, fucking shouting matches with dudes and then turning that into speeches that the dude gives on his political campaign. In my opinion, it's really the the chief realizing, oh, I can use your language to get my point across. Mm-hmm. But Gene thinks he's kind of making changes. But because of his own skepticalness towards authority, like, he's he's kind of always willing to push the buttons to, to reform in this fashion. It's very interesting because he's, he's, he's got this really complicated relationship with dude. Oh, it sounds like where I'm at with Catholicism right now. Where, where it's... Like, I know it's bad, but it's what I know. And so, like, I get sensitive of critiques of it, even though I'm fully aware of all I think of it's that really, shit. I think it's really bad. 
I know it's really bad, I think, okay? I, I, think was... the, I think the rosary thing is kind of dumb, too. Oh, What's we had to plugs? do the full thing. Or not butt plugs. What's with the anal beads? You're a butt plug. I always well, wanted to go to confession just to see if they would be like, I am sorry that happened to you, man. Like, like, <laughs> um, Or they might just fart before you go in the room, and then you're stuck yeah, with dude. their fart. Is there is there like a similar rule for for uh, priests and Lyft drivers are not allowed to fart in their workspace? Like, it's so hard not to fart, though. Yeah. Sometimes you just gotta fart. Speaking of farts, the cops. Yeah, right. Speaking <laughs> so, of farts. So, but you were correct. There's this weird period where they're trying to formalize it and institutionalize policing and make it a, a community service. His last two comments are to be honorable mm-hmm. and to be respectful or to have self-discipline. Because to him, it's all these things he learned in the army because it's all the things Was he, he saw standing no, uh, but he also he's he's cheating on his wife all the time during this. There's constant. It's funny in the, in his autobiography. There's like every chapter starts with and the marriage was on the rocks and so or, or, <laughs> just, just reuses that line. Uh, but he he also he's cheating all the time. But he also stays with her because he feels he it's that old school obligation of like. You know, I, I have to. And there's this weird thing where his dad is super kind of domineering of his mom, so, sort of, is the vibe I'm getting. Like, it doesn't come out. It, like, like, I also think his dad was an abusive asshole, but in the book he's described as a very affable man. But I think some of that kind of feeds into Gene where he's like, I don't want to hurt her, but I also don't want to leave her alone. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to be a good guy, but I don't know how to be a good guy because my framework isn't isn't one that shows me Do you think good... there was something about her that he just couldn't let go of either, maybe? Maybe just that she, she was in love with him early kind of thing. And it's, I mean, they have kids together too. And it's also like if you, I can identify because I've been in relationships longer than they should have been because I was like, I don't want to make the same mistakes as my dad. And I think it's one of those things where if you can't admit your dad is an asshole when he's been an asshole to you, then you can't acknowledge that you're being an asshole yourself. And so I think there, there's a lot of that going on. I think that's 100% accurate. Patrick. He needs to go in a few minutes. So we're going to we're gonna wrap it up there with Gene Roddenberry as a police officer uh, <coughs> surviving three fucking plane crashes after... Oh. After 89 missions, also. That's the other thing. and then in, That's a good ratio. Yeah, and then in Pan Am, especially in those kind of planes, and yeah. then in Pan Am, he goes on <laughs> many flights. He's there from, from like, post-war, like, 1945 to 48 is when he's at Pan Am. So there's three years of six weeks of flying, six weeks of at home, or, or six weeks of cheating on your wife, six weeks of at home with your family, <laughs> six weeks. And there's a... There's oh, a, my... Uh, so I, he's lived multiple lives, basically. Yeah, yeah. Are we having Kyle back? To I, I would hope so. I hope. Kyle, before you go, do you got any website, social media that you can? Uh, yeah, Kyle Adams Comedy on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, Kyle Adams, and Twitter, uh, Batman Casual. Rochelle doesn't matter. No, I'm kidding. Rochelle, <gasps> Rochelle you have horror for horror horror for, for porn. Yes, I got it right this time. Um, oh, this is going to be out after it. But pretty soon <laughs> we're going to find out. Pretty soon we're going to find out. 
Who's gonna get the painting that I made? Oh yeah, yeah. The little mushroom. To one of my patrons, which is a great way to say if you go and join Patreon forward slash recyclables, you might get free art from me for Patreon exclusives. I've been putting up random audiobooks of sorts. So like, we did a story from a historian that I really like. Uh, Before that, I did Sleepy Hollow. No, I have Sleepy Hollow on there. I don't have the the Washington Irving. We're gonna do it again. Are you gonna research Charles Dickens? Not this time. Patrick. Eventually, I'm. I'm. Patrick. I am researching the history of white supremacy through the Spanish okay, Empire. I am researching how the You're South won. You're working on really important stuff. <laughs> I have future episodes with Kyle to do about Star Trek and mm. sex addict and drug fiend Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> oh, my, my new my new personal hero, by the way. He sounds complicated. Yeah. That is how I'm going to put it in my little heart. And his dad sounds like a real butthole. I was not a fan of his dad. The more I learned about his dad, the more I was like... The thing I really like about Roddenberry's story is how much of history happens near him and around him and looping through him. Yeah. Even with Star Trek. Like, there's a lot of stuff that he... He just comes up with the idea. It's... Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Uh, He's sci-fi Forrest Gump. Yeah. (laughs) That's a really good... I like that. I'm sorry. That's solid. That is... That is solid, Yeah. Everybody can suck it. Sorry. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the Acast streaming service are, of course, always welcomed. But the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.